Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Senator Bernie Sanders visits Mississippi to push for a union at the Nissan plant. We'll hear from both sides. Then, after everyday tech, a new report is looking at national health data from an extremely local perspective. Find out how Mississippi cities compare. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A former presidential candidate is standing with Nissan workers in Canton as they seek to unionize the plant. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont was in Canton over the weekend to speak at a rally called the March on Mississippi. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, actor Danny Glover, and NAACP President Cornell William Brooks were also there. Senator Sanders told the enthusiastic crowd unionization is an important economic issue in Mississippi. What's been going on is the great middle class of this country has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. In this state of Mississippi, in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, 30% of the beautiful children are living in poverty. In America, half of older workers have nothing in the bank as they prepare for retirement. In this country, moms and dads can't afford quality childcare for their kids. And we have teachers here who are working two or three jobs in order to make a living. This is America. This is the greatest country in the history of the world. And all of our people deserve decent wages and decent benefits. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Cornell William Brooks is president of the NAACP. He spoke to MPB's Desiree Frazier, saying if Nissan can allow unions at plants all around the world, they should allow them here in Mississippi. So we are, as a nation, in the midst of a Twitter-age civil rights movement with civil rights and economic rights uh, are, in fact, the same human rights that we are asserting before the country. And so we're in Canton, Mississippi. We have Mississippi workers who produce some of the best cars in the world, the best product in the world, are not being treated the same as everyone else in the world. In other words, when Nissan has 42 plants that are unionized, except for the one in Mississippi, two in Tennessee, that's not right. And so the NAACP stands with, beside, and behind these workers as they are attempting to organize and create a union to protect themselves and to protect their families and to contribute to this community. Because note this, we have seen in this country where workers are organized, their wages are better, their uh, workplaces are safer, their rights are protected. And so we believe in these workers. We believe in the work of the NAACP. And we believe in this Mississippi State Conference and the NAACP, which has been fighting with these workers for 10 years to organize a union. So where you have a presidential candidate, where you have 
Danny Glover. We have people coming from across the country to Canton, Mississippi to support these workers. It says that what they're calling for is right. Uh, the time is right. So for me, uh, it's great to come back to Mississippi. I was educated here. I met my wife here, was married here, and um, it's just it's good to be here. When you talk about um, Nissan and the, and the workers, the rights to, uh, the need to organize, understand that there have been allegations of intimidation. Indeed. So the National Labor Relations Board has charged this plant with worker intimidation. Now keep in mind, the NLRB only finds charges, only issues charges in 6% of the complaints that are filed. So in other words, it is rare that the NLRB files a charge. And so it says that there's a credible, serious uh, concern about workers being able to lift up their voices in this democracy without intimidation. Now these people come to work, they work hard, they produce a great product, they have a right to be workers and citizens, to speak out, to speak up, to speak forward and be heard. Uh, and they can't they, and shouldn't be intimidated. How is it that in our courts we are fighting right now as we speak voter suppression? We can't fight voter suppression in the courts and have worker suppression and intimidation in the plant. These two things don't go together. Do you see this as really making a difference? Oh, absolutely. Because... All of us, at points in our lives, need support. We need encouragement. We need to be shored up. And so hopefully it says that every worker in this plant, we care about you. We believe in you. We're willing to stand with you and stand beside you. And that what you're doing is in the lineage and the legacy of Dr. King, whose last march was a march to stand with and beside workers, sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. What you're doing right now is in that legacy and in that lineage, and it's just that important. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important about this? I, I would just simply say this is a moment in our country where some attempted to uh, lapse into a kind of cynical or pessimistic funk, uh, a kind of clinical depression of our democracy. The fact that you have all of these people here coming together, demonstrating young people, older people, folks of the millennial generation and the Motown generation, this should lift your spirit and say to you, we can do things. We can organize. We can be heard. We're powerful. Uh, and as I tried to say in my, uh, my talk earlier, the Bible reminds us over and over and over again, do not despise the day of small beginnings. And this is a day of big beginnings. That's Thank you so much. Thank you. And a... NAACP President Cornell William Brooks with our Desiree Frazier. In response to the calls for a union, Nissan says they do treat workers fairly. They say every worker in the Canton plant, even temporary workers, are in what the company calls, quote, long-term stable jobs. Rodney Francis works in human resources at Nissan in Canton. He talks with MPB's Ezra Wall. The efforts to unionize the plant in Canton have been going on for a number of years. So this is not something new to our facility. We certainly respect the rights of our employees and, and those out there protesting. They have the right to demonstrate and protest and, and you know, have such marches. Um, but our focus here is just trying to make sure that we continue to provide good jobs with good benefits you know, for our employees. 
We've had a really good track record of success with doing that. You know, for example, we've since 2013, I believe it is, we've added about 1,500 jobs to that facility. You said that you respect the right of workers to hold the march and hold the protest, but the idea of unionizing in general, do you support a union at Nissan or do you do you not want a union at the Nissan plant in Canton? There's no question. We have a position, and that position is essentially that we believe that you know, direct communication with our employees is the um, you know, the best way for us to continue to improve that facility and grow it and address any concerns that they might have. In terms of uh, employees communicating with each other about this issue, uh, some in, in various media outlets, uh, some current uh, and former employees have talked over the years about what they consider to be uh, intimidation about those kinds of uh, conversations. Are employees allowed to talk to one another about their support or non-support of a union while they're on the premises? Absolutely. I want to make sure we're clear that, you know, we don't suppress those discussions or anything like that. The employees in, in, uh, in, within the four walls of that plant have no problem speaking their mind, and they do it all the time. So they do that. They can have those types of discussions. Now, certainly there are some regulations about some of the ways that that happens in terms of, you know, this is established labor law, so this is not, you know, something that's up to, you know, to Nissan. We certainly respect the laws. One of the issues that uh, that has been brought up over the years is the use of temp workers and contract workers uh, in and the length of time that those contractors or temp workers are employed, and there's some feeling that uh, that when the opportunity arises, if somebody's going to be there for a period of multiple years, you should make that person a fully vested employee with uh, with all of the benefits and retirements and everything thereof. And yet we've we've heard about people who have either stood on the line or worked in offices with temp workers and with contractors for sometimes multiple years doing the same or similar work. How would you respond to that criticism? Please understand that all of those jobs that we have at that facility are long-term, stable jobs with benefits. Secondly, I want to make sure that everybody understands that the work that we do at that facility um, is work that is, for a lot of people, very new, very different from anything else that they've ever done. And Nissan brought um, automotive manufacturing and that industry to the state. And so we do take the time to evaluate our employees um, and so forth and just make sure that they're the, and they take the time to evaluate us. But ultimately, every person that comes through the four walls of that, you know, comes in to work for Nissan has the opportunity to transition over, you know, as a, as a Nissan technician. Everybody's afforded that opportunity. Nissan's Rodney Francis with MPB's Ezra Wall. Coming up, a new report is looking at national health data from an extremely local perspective. Find out how Mississippi cities compare. That's after Everyday Tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. You work hard to offer a high-quality, unique product, and you need an audience that appreciates this. MPB listeners go out of their way to find diverse perspectives and award-winning news and programming. Make our audience your audience with an MPB underwriting credit. For more information, go to mpbonline.org.
This is Everyday Tech on the Mississippi Edition. I'm Sharita Brent in studio with Wilt Couture and Jeremy Thompson. And this morning, we're going to be talking about tech and finances. Good morning to you, Wilt and Jeremy. Good morning. Good morning. This is an area where many people are paranoid. Folks want to know that their money is safe. When you talk about putting your financial information out there on the Internet or on an app, people kind of get concerned. But I will start by saying I have a few banking apps and I find it very comforting to know you just spent this much on this purchase with Wells Fargo. When I just made a purchase, I get an email. So can we talk a little bit about the good parts of having something like a banking app? Well, yeah. I mean, we, um, well, for example, we, with both of my kids, we just set them both up with their own bank accounts, checking accounts, and with the card and everything. And, and exactly like what you're saying, we set it up with the programs that they're using out there now. They use the card. We have instant visibility into what they're doing, as do they, you know, trying to teach those them those good habits, like what you're talking about. Get an alert whenever you're making a charge. It's simply a text or a little pop-up. But, you know, use the technology to your advantage to be informed. Don't be surprised 30 days later when the statement comes to you. Jeremy, what are your thoughts on things like banking apps? Do you think there are some things that people should be cautious of? I definitely think you should be cautious of it, but I do think they're helpful. In fact, I usually have clients that will be standing right there and, you know, like they'll swipe the card and it'll be declined or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, let me check my balance real quick. And they're like, oh, no, there's money in there. Try it again. Mm -hmm. So just that fast, they can get that knowledge and say, there's no problem here. Let me pull up my finances real quick and I can have it at a moment's notice. So it's, it's convenient. I would say if you're keeping it on your mobile device, you want to have a password on it and you want it to be something secure. Don't just use all zeros or 2580 for anyone mm-hmm. out there listening. One, two, three, four. Isn't that what everybody uses? That one's good too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah stay yeah. away from those because those are the ones that people think of very easily. One thing that uh, on my app, it does, it asks questions. So mm-hmm. well, what was the first school you went to? Could you guys talk about some of those two-step authentication type things that people can incorporate? Well, I think about those questions... Uh, a little bit uniquely. If I follow, if I'm friends with someone on Facebook, I can probably answer most of those questions for them. We're all doing those little quizzes like, oh, you know, what, what street you grow up on? Well, that happens to be a security question. So I may wow. not answer those questions correctly. What's I, your favorite beverage? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, you know, what was your high school mascot? Well, you know, if, if me and you are friends on Facebook, I can see where you went to high school. It's not too hard to figure that one out. So I would uh, definitely tell people, I think those dual authentication is absolutely wonderful. Think about who has access to your answers, though. And just remember, you don't have to be 100% truthful. You just have to be consistent. So, you know, what was your high school mascot? Green. You know, what street did you grow up on? Bulldogs, you know, things mm. like that. Um, you know, think think about that. And as long as you're consistent, I think you're a little bit better off. That, that's just kind of my approach. My, my wife disagrees with me on that, but, you know, <laughs> begrudgingly follows along. And also something that's not found in the dictionary is, is highly effective in those areas, because if a hacker were trying to get into your bank account, he's going to be doing it with some kind of program. So, yeah, just ask a bunch of these actors and actresses about how uh, how well those security questions protected those. So especially when you're dealing with your money, because I don't know about y'all. But sometimes that money can be a little bit hard to come by. I'd like to kind of hold on to yes. mine. Agreed. <laughs> well, how often uh, does it occur, hacking of people's bank accounts online and things like that? Is that pretty rare? Probably by the minute. Probably just happened while you were saying that right there. Oh, wow. Um, so it's it, there are so many different ways for someone to get your information. So we have to do our due diligence and make sure that we're protecting our stuff with good questions like that and passwords on our devices and so forth. But even that... Still, there's another end of it. Where is the data sitting and who's got it? So that that can also be compromised. And it's more likely that that would be the end of it that is compromised. Okay. Yeah, we hear a lot about, you know, you hear your big box stores when they get, you know, when you hear about these big millions of accounts getting hacked into. But quite honestly, the the standard uh, 
you know, stealing of someone's identity, it happens almost probably constantly. I mean, I remember just a couple of weeks ago I was sitting in the office and one of my teammates was sitting there with me and all of a sudden he started getting an alert on his phone and someone in Dallas was just making repetitive charges mm. on his account. And he's like, you know, he immediately went down to the bank. He's like, look, obviously I'm not in Dallas. I'm standing in your lobby. But I mean, it just happened just that quick. And he's, you know, pretty cautious with where he's putting things. So, I mean, it, a lot of it's just staying aware. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about tech and finance. We'll get into Google Wallet, Apple Pay, PayPal, uh, things like that on Everyday Tech, the show this coming Wednesday. You can always send us an email before or during the show to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. And then tune in for the conversation Wednesday morning at 10 on Everyday Tech. For Wilts Couture and Jeremy Thompson, I'm Sharita Brent. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. Thanks for listening. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. There are 11 million immigrants living in the U.S. illegally. How did that happen? Well, the short answer to the question probably is that our laws have not been aligned with our economy for at least 25 years and possibly longer. The story of how we came to have 11 million people living and working off the books this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new partnership is taking a closer look at health outcomes in America's 500 largest cities. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Centers for Disease Control, and the CDC Foundation are launching the 500 Cities Project. The effort applies national health research techniques to local data. Dr. Judy Monroe is president of the CDC Foundation. She explains to MPB's Ezra Wall. Local data is something that health officials and city planners uh, and others have been wanting for a long time. It's really been a, a, a gap uh, in our ability uh, at the local level to, to make really informed decisions about using resources and, and where to target uh, interventions. And so uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, along with Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the CDC Foundation, came together around this uh, project and the way this has unfolded, there are there's data that we have for all 50 states and uh, DC that we've been collecting that the Centers for Disease Control has been collecting since 1984 through the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, and that's telephone interviews. So they call people and ask them, you know, a whole series of questions about uh, their use of preventive uh, services and their health behaviors and health outcomes. And that data has been available, but it's been available at the state level primarily. So now this is a, that what they've done is they've used a method of generating small area estimation of the measures uh, that are in the, this BRFSS uh, data. This is a multi-level statistical modeling framework that they've used. If anybody wants to know more about the method, there are a couple of papers that they can read about uh, on the CDC website. Uh, but this is brand new. We've never had this kind of uh, local data at this level before. So it's interesting to me that geography, you're looking at sort of health outcomes in terms of where people live specifically. How can geographic location affect people's health or what do we know about the relationship between health outcomes and geography? Yeah, that's a great question. So so where you live really does matter to your health. Uh, There's some stark differences and gaps between 
uh, even neighborhoods that are right next to one another, uh, and certainly, you know, communities that are a mile or two apart. Every city, of course, is different. But, you know, when we think about health, personal responsibility is important. But if you live in a community where you have limited choices uh, available, so as an example, you, you might live in a neighborhood that has more liquor stores than it has grocery stores. Uh, or if you lack safe and affordable housing or you have poor quality schools, those things do matter uh, for health outcomes and what individuals are able, able to do. So that's why this local data is, is so critical to, to understanding what we can do about it. You mentioned the wealth of state-specific data that we've had access to over the years. The uh, 500 Cities Project specifically looks at two cities in Mississippi, Jackson and Biloxi. What does this study tell us about uh, Jackson and Biloxi or places like Jackson and Biloxi that we didn't know before? So, so what we can tell from this data is that when you look at uh, Jackson, uh, Jackson does better than your state average on low levels of, of binge drinking and high rates of mammograms for women uh, and colon cancer screenings. Uh, you know, if you go to uh, Biloxi, Gulfport residents, uh, they do better than the state average on obesity. Uh, and both, both of these places are doing well uh, on routine doctor visits. But the residents in both of these places face challenges compared to your state average when uh, it comes to getting enough sleep, uh, asthma prevalence, high blood pressure and cholesterol screenings as examples. Mississippi often ranks high in, in obesity and tobacco use and chronic disease and so many other factors. How does this data, how does data like this help our health officials here in Mississippi know how to concentrate our resources to overcome these things? Yeah, and I think this is where it gets really interesting. So you can take, uh, you know, either one of these cities. So as an example, if you go to the, uh, the web application that's been launched today. So if you go to cdc.gov slash 500 cities and zoom in on Jackson as an example, uh, as, you, as you zoom in on that and start looking at each of these health indicators, you're going to be able to see wide variation uh, within the city of each of these, these indicators. And, and so this is, this is really where this is really rich data because everybody has limited resources. We have finite resources that we can uh, deploy. So your urban planners can use this data as an example uh, to uh, make decisions about uh, the built environment, where they might want to put sports and recreation areas uh, if you've got higher rates of, of obesity in a particular neighborhood uh, that, that's going to be different elsewhere. Uh, if you want to message uh, your uh, uh, community about uh, tobacco, uh, as an example, you might target certain bus stops or particular radio stations or social media, depending on where your highest rates are within this census tract uh, data. I mean, this goes down to, you know, a census tract level, which is just never, never again, never before have we had this, this uh, level of data. Uh, to be able to target those resources. So if if somebody's listening to this and they're looking through this data and kind of looking for a take-home uh, message, what's, what's the sort of uh, nutshell about Jackson or about Biloxi that people should be taking away from this? Yeah, well, I think for individuals as well as, uh, you know, all the way up to government officials, I, I think the takeaway is that there's, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, there are, are plenty of challenges uh, uh, in both of these communities around uh, you know, health behaviors, and um, I would I would 
go for where the worst outcomes are and, and uh, target those resources that you have. Mobilize the communities or mobilize the resources to uh, try to really make a difference. The 500 Cities Project is a project of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the CDC Foundation. We've been speaking with Dr. Judy Monroe of the CDC Foundation. Thank you very much, Dr. Monroe. Great being with you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, now you're talking with Marshall Ramsey. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? You can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8 30 for the next mississippi edition only on mpb think radio support for mississippi edition comes from trustmark featuring trustmark deposit express atms for business and personal banking no deposit slips no envelopes no waiting Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com, member FDIC.